Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Bryony, and I'm going to highlight what to look for in the sky in November in this Cosmic Diary. Thanks to a combination of poorly timed annual leave and unfortunately timed sickness, I'm going to be going at this one alone, but Patricia will be back next month for the December podcast. I'd also like to give a special mention and thanks to Natalie Calabawila, one of our work experience students from this summer, who helped put the astronomical highlights in this cosmic diary together for us. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow around 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. There are a number of delightful sights adorning our skies this November. From planets to star clusters, there's something for everyone. With a new moon occurring on the 4th, use the dark skies at the beginning of the month to explore some of the jewels of the autumn night sky. Look towards the east at around 8pm and you will spot M45, the Pleiades Open Star Cluster. The Pleiades is also sometimes known as the Seven Sisters, as you actually can see seven bright blue stars in this cluster with the naked eye. But grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope and you'll see that there are actually hundreds of young stars inside this cluster. Lying close to the Pleiades is a distinctive V-shaped pattern of stars. These stars, which represent the head of the constellation of Taurus, the bull, are part of the Hyades star cluster. The eye of the bull is marked by the bright orange-red star Aldebaran, and although it might look like it's part of the Hyades star cluster, it just happens to lie along our line of sight. Aldebaran actually lies around 65 light-years from the Earth, whereas the Hyades are more like 150 light-years away. Quite a difference, I'm sure we can all agree. If you're a fan of the planets, then there are lots to choose from this month. The gas giants Jupiter and Saturn continue to dominate the southern sky in the evenings just after sunset and are very easy to spot by eye, even in light-polluted London. If you have a pair of binoculars or a telescope, then definitely use that to gaze at these planets. I don't think you'll be disappointed. For those with unobstructed views towards the southwest, you may be able to catch a view of the planet Venus. Venus actually goes through similar phases to the Moon, so if you have a telescope, you can watch the phase of Venus change throughout the month. If you are up for a challenge, you could maybe try and spot the ice giant Uranus, which reaches opposition on November the 4th. When a planet reaches opposition, it means that the Earth lies directly between the planet and the Sun. In other words, the planet will be on the opposite side of the sky to the Sun. With Uranus at opposition, it will appear at its largest and brightest, making this the best time to view Uranus, though it's still a bit of a challenge. Its brightness will place it close to the edge of what can be seen with the naked eye, so spotting the ice giant will be made much easier if you have a pair of binoculars or a telescope. Here in the UK, the month of November is associated with fireworks displays, and while many of the fireworks are man-made, Others are cosmic in origin. 
As comets make their way through our solar system, they leave dusty debris trails behind. And as the Earth plows through this debris, observers on the Earth get to see meteor showers. Stargazers will be treated to two meteor showers this month. The first, the Northern Taurids, peaks on the night of the 12th. With a radiant lying in the constellation of Taurus the Bull, the best time to spot this shower will be just after midnight. Although with an average of only five meteors an hour, you're probably looking at a long night of observing, the Taurids are well known for having a high percentage of fireballs, or exceptionally bright meteors. The moon will also be in a favourable place for the northern Taurids, having set just before midnight. The second meteor shower of the month, the Leonid meteor shower, peaks on the night of the 17th or 18th of November. The radiant for this meteor shower lies in the constellation of Leo the Lion, and the debut responsible for producing this comes from the comet Temple Tuttle. Averaging at around 15 meteors per hour at its peak, this year's shower will also unfortunately have to compete against the light of an almost full moon, so we'd probably recommend the Northern Taurids if you're really hoping to go meteor spotting this month. For those living in the Southern Hemisphere, there are some wonderful constellations to look at at this time of year. One such constellation is Pavo, the peacock, which sits on the edge of the band of the Milky Way. There are two notable deep sky objects lying in this constellation. The first is a barred spiral galaxy, NGC 6744, one of the galaxies in the local universe that is most similar to our own Milky Way. Lying about 300 million light-years away, this galaxy is bigger than our own, with a disk stretching about 175,000 light-years across, compared to our own around 100,000 light-years. The second deep-sky object to look out for in Parvo is NGC 6752, the third brightest globular cluster in the night sky. Located over 10,000 light-years away, this spherical star cluster is over a hundred light-years in diameter, and contains over a hundred thousand stars. Lying above Parvo is the constellation of Tucana, the Toucan, and lying within the boundaries of this constellation, you'll find the Small Magellanic Cloud, or SMC, as well as two globular star clusters, 47 Tucane and NGC 362. We did explore the SMC and 47 Tuck in our September Cosmic Diary, but both objects are always well worth a look at. NGC 362 is fainter and smaller than 47 Tuck and does require a pair of binoculars or a telescope to be seen, but trust us, you won't be disappointed seeing this dense stellar swarm. Globular clusters are much older than the majority of stars in their host galaxy normally, but NGC 362 bucks this trend, with an average age somewhere between 10 and 11 billion years old, which is younger than the age of our Milky Way galaxy, an estimated 13 billion years in age. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome to the cosmic news part of the podcast, the part where we bring you stories that have broken in astronomy in the past month or so. 
Uh, well, I guess normally it's stories, but this month it is story as Patricia is not able to join us. So we'll save the epic battle and the results of last month's epic battle for the next podcast. This month, I want to talk about Lucy, NASA's newest space probe. Launched on October 16th, Lucy is on a mission to study the Trojan asteroids of Jupiter. Now, Trojan asteroids are groups of asteroids that orbit in the same orbital path as Jupiter, just in sort of two camps, one about 60 degrees ahead of Jupiter, the other about 60 degrees behind Jupiter. So how does this work? How can we have something that is orbiting with Jupiter but is stable? Well, we need to look at orbital mechanics very briefly. So consider the two-body system of the Sun and Jupiter. Obviously, the Sun is much, much larger than Jupiter, but Jupiter is still pretty massive in itself, and so it's still exerting a gravitational force that is very measurable on uh, the space around it. So now, for, say for example, we take uh, a much smaller object, such as an asteroid, and put it somewhere within this two-body system. In most places, it's going to be experiencing an unbalanced force. It's going to feel like it's going to be pulled a little bit more towards the Sun or a little bit closer to Jupiter. It might end up in some different orbit. However, there are five very specific places where, if something is in that location, it will actually orbit at the same rate as Jupiter does around the Sun. These are known as Lagrange points. So the Trojan asteroids sit at two of them, uh, one called L4, one called L5, and they sit in the same orbit as Jupiter with one just before and one just behind. Essentially, L4 or L5, the Sun and Jupiter make an equilateral triangle so that at each of these Lagrange points, an object is equidistant from Jupiter and the Sun. That's why they are stable. This is actually really quite special, um, the three-body problem, uh, you may have heard of that, not the best-selling book, but just the idea. It's a very, very difficult to solve system, and we don't actually have an analytical solution for it in general. But uh, we can solve it for these specific cases, and we can see that uh, at these points, the objects sit in a relatively stable orbit. So objects in L4 and L5 in particular are very, very stable. So they're going to stay pretty much exactly where they are. That means that objects may have been there since the beginning of our solar system, since the very first formation of our planets. So that is the aim of Lucy, to study these asteroids, these objects that sit within these specific places. And that, actually, is why we called it Lucy. Lucy is the name of an Australopithecus fossil discovered in Ethiopia in 1974. She was named Lucy because uh, basically when the paleontologists found her, they had a party that night because they knew they were onto something really big. Uh, and they just were really big fans of Beatles, particularly Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. Boogieing along to Lucy in the Sky with diamonds, they decided that this fossil, it's a diamond in the rough, we're going to call it Lucy. Another name for it is Dinkanesh, which means you are marvellous in Amharic, which is an Ethiopian language. So the Lucy fossil, it tells us a lot about the origins of humans, and we're hoping that the Lucy spacecraft is going to be able to tell us a little bit more about these fossils of our solar system, which may have been in their orbits since the beginnings of our solar system. Which is, to be honest, pretty exciting. 
Now, asteroids are really, really difficult to see because, well, they're really quite small and typically quite faint. They have quite a low albedo. That is how much light they reflect. And so there's actually not a whole lot known about uh, the asteroids in particular that Lucy is going to be studying. In fact, until recently, we thought Lucy was going to be visiting seven objects. Turns out she's actually going to be visiting eight, because one of the larger Trojan asteroids she'll be visiting has a small moon. So what are those targets? Well, in the leading swarm, that's at L4, they are Eurybates, Polymel, Lucas, and Orcus, and Eurybates' newly discovered moon, Gweta. Lucy will also be looking in the trailing swarm, studying two asteroids called Patroclus and Minotius. Now, these are actually a binary system. In between this, well, actually, before it, uh, Lucy even reaches the leading swarm, Lucy will actually study a main belt asteroid called Donald Johansson. Now, this is actually particularly cute because this asteroid didn't have a name until they launched the Lucy mission when they realized that Lucy was going to be doing a flyby of this really small, only four kilometers across main belt asteroid, they named it Donald Johansson after the guy who was one of the discoverers of the initial Lucy fossil. He is himself obviously really jazzed about this. He really loves astronomy. So this is, I think, a really nice nod to the original Lucy, if you will. These asteroids were chosen because they're a pretty good, I guess, representative sample of asteroids that we can find. So we have D-type asteroids, P-type asteroids, and C-type asteroids. So C-type asteroids are carbonaceous asteroids. They're the most common asteroid, we think, or at least they're the easiest to see because they're a little bit brighter than the others. P and D-type asteroids have much, much lower albedos and so have relatively featureless spectra, which makes it really difficult for us to study them from our position on Earth. The hope is that Lucy will be able to study them in much greater detail. Lucy will have very similar instruments to what we've attached to the New Horizons scope, which was launched in 2005 and took these stunning images of Pluto and Charon in 2015. Updated slightly, of course, but still as robust, we hope. Lucy is due to take measurements of Donald Johansson, its first stop on its mission, in April 2025. It really is super exciting that we are studying these really, really small, faint objects close up. Because that's really the main issue with asteroids, knowing anything about them. They're just so faint and so small, we can't tell a lot about them without actually going there. And being able to study so many at once means that a mission is kind of really worth going. You know, you don't want to just hit one asteroid, you want to hit as many as you possibly can. You want to really explore these areas of space that we just haven't been able to explore before. We may be able to find something that could tell us a little bit more about the origins of our solar system, or at the very least, the conditions in the beginning. That's all from me for this month. Hopefully Patricia will be back uh, with a voice next month. But until then, I hope you all stay safe and keep looking up. Mm -hmm.